KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. Welcome back to another edition of the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. Today I'm going to give you a behind-the-scenes look at a play preparing for its world premiere next month at the La Jolla Playhouse. The play is called Hollywood, and it's all about the film industry at a turning point. The focus of the play is the scandalous murder of director William Desmond Taylor in 1922, a murder that remains unsolved to this day. I speak with the playwright, Joe DiPietro, director Christopher Ashley, and actor Patrick Kerr, who plays Will Hayes, a pivotal character in the play and in cleaning up Hollywood. He is the Hayes that the Hayes Code is named after, and he clamped down on Hollywood's naughtiness both on screen and off. I also got to sit in on part of an early rehearsal. The play is still being fine-tuned, with pages of rewrites every day. I hope you'll enjoy this early glimpse of a work in progress that's all about Hollywood. To start, here's my interview with playwright Joe DiPietro. Your new play, Hollywood, draws on a famous scandal from Hollywood in the 20s. What drew you to this? Uh, Well, I've always been an old movie buff, and I love, 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 probably my favorite movies are made in the mid-30s and into the 40s and early 50s. So I've always just been curious about when Hollywood was new and movies were new and movie stores were new. And I had gotten obsessed with this case uh, that I'd just been reading about online, about the murder of William Desmond Taylor, who, in, during the early days of silent movies, was a, a very prominent director. He was probably one of the five or six biggest directors in Hollywood. And he's, his best friend was Mabel Norman, who was a huge movie star, sort of the Jennifer Lawrence of her day, and worked with Charlie Chaplin and Fatty Arbuckle, who was very beloved, and they, they wrote the musical Mac and Mabel about her, which is how we sort of know her still in the culture. He was best friends with her, and uh, one night she came to visit. He walked her to her car, came back into his bungalow, shut the door, and there was uh, someone waiting for him behind his door and shot him. And it was a case that stunned not only Hollywood but the world, because this was at the infancy of Hollywood when there were a bunch of other scandals brewing, like the famous Fatty Arbuckle scandal where he was accused of murdering a young woman with a very lascivious uh, method, and he was totally innocent of, but Hollywood was getting a lot of bad press for the uh, immoral behavior of its stars, and it was starting to lose money, and it was starting, they were starting to worry about the future of the industry. So when William Desmond Taylor was killed, no one knew who did it, and because Mabel Norman was the last person to see him go, and because he um, was had a past that was very suspicious himself. It became just the biggest sensation since uh, World War One. Actually, sold as many papers as uh, the Great War, and people were fascinated by it because it was the first time that not only did people feel like they knew who the murder victim was, but all of the suspects that the newspapers were throwing at them were famous movie stars. So it was like a real life movie in this town that people were just becoming to understand. I, I really think it's about the uh, dawn of modern celebrity and what it is. It was really the first case like that. 
Was one of the things that was appealing to you also was that it was an unsolved case, so you could kind of maybe play around with the story a little bit? Yeah, exactly. The, the case was never solved, clearly because the LAPD did not want the case solved, because all the evidence, it was a terrible investigation. All of the evidence was lost. You know, all of those guys then were, you know, on the take. Well, Mr. Ayton and his film people cleared out the crime scene before you arrived. Yeah, we didn't even we didn't know it was a crime scene. Yeah. That also doesn't make a lot of sense. Of course, you did get all the fingerprints you need. Oh, wait, no, you couldn't. Not after Mr. Ayton and his film people took all that stuff. And I even hear your man didn't bother to take a picture of the original position of the body. Wow. Tell me, do you catch all the criminals you pursue? All right, we're done here. Well, I'm just curious because they don't catch all the criminals in the motion pictures, and I'm determined to change that. Every time crime is committed in the motion picture, I want the criminal caught. Listen to me. We'll catch the son of a bitch. Well, that's awfully encouraging to hear. Though maybe a little hard to believe. And I think the fact that it was unsolved has fascinated people for, for many years, and it, it can actually never truly be solved because, uh, as I said, all the evidence was really tossed away. And, and certain people who should have been interviewed weren't by the police right away. So the fact that it's unsolved as a dramatist is very exciting because, A, you get to solve it yourself, but the play becomes more about uh, who done it. It becomes about bigger issues. You know, uh, Chris Ashley, the director and myself, we keep telling ourselves when we're doing because it's a play it's not a tv show or a movie we keep saying let's how do we make this not a very special episode of law and order how do we do a whodunit but make it about larger issues uh, in the culture that still resonate today and what kind of larger issues are you going for well you know it's the three of the main characters in the show uh, are three women and it's very much about women in the culture and how what hollywood does to women especially then, and these were three very bright, successful, smart, determined women. It's very much about celebrity culture, not only with these women, but in general. Uh, And it's also very much about censorship and the rise of conservatism in Hollywood at the time, and obviously it's echoes of that in the country still today. So um, there's one speech in it that I wrote that we we were reading with the actors the other day, and I thought, oh, Ted Cruz could have actually said this speech. History um, repeats itself and echoes through time. The, The one character who I inserted a little earlier than he had influence was Will Hayes, who was the famous censor and came up with the Hayes Code in the 30s, I believe, that really affected how Hollywood, for the next 30 years, uh, what could be could and couldn't be shown on screen. So when uh, he had come to Hollywood right at the top of this Taylor case and he was hired away from Washington by the studios to sort of become a public relations man to to calm down all of this talk of the scandals and things that were going on. But then he also got soon took more power than they ever imagined and really became the censor of Hollywood and the, and the uh, chief moralist of Hollywood. So Will Hayes is very much in this story as the chief moralist of Hollywood. And, he, you know, like any moralist, he believes that uh, his morality is absolute and that he's, by any means necessary, he is infringing his morality on not only Hollywood but the rest of the nation. I was summoned here to save an industry, but nobody told me there'd be amateurs running it. Jesus Christ, calm down. Do not blaspheme in my presence. You are a business run by Hebrews who are assaulting the values of great Americans across this nation. All day long I have to listen to you sneer at the people back home, but the people back home, they don't like Hollywood. You offend every moral we have. 
But you don't understand that. All you understand is money. So let me explain it to you with money. This country is tired of filth. Your box office is in steep decline. If you don't listen to the people back home, your industry will disappear. And I am the people back home. This scandal, along with the Fatty Arbuckle scandal that she mentioned, mm-hmm. led to morality clauses being yeah. put into mm-hmm. actors' contracts. Right. Can you explain a little bit about what that is so that people understand yeah. what that was about? Sure. You know, Hollywood, you also have to realize at this time, this was, uh, this, the play takes place in 1922. Hollywood was brand new. And motion pictures, as they used to call them, were brand new. And like, and it really, 20 years earlier, there was no motion picture industry. By 1922, it was the most powerful form of communication the world had ever seen. So suddenly there was a lot of money behind it, and there were a lot of people who wanted control of it. And what also happened was very young, pretty people came to Hollywood to be actors and actresses. And because in those days the lighting was rudimentary and they didn't have lines to memorize because the movies were silent, they could actually go out and party and stay out late and have a good time and then show up for work the next morning and do their scenes. So as a result, you just had you know young pretty people suddenly making hundreds of thousands of dollars, nineteen you know in the nineteen tens and nineteen twenty. So. They sort of, as you can imagine, people you know, people with given that opportunity, and they're young and they're pretty, and they had a good time. Drugs were rampant then in ways that, and they were not aware of their effects in the ways that we are. You know, we all know cocaine was used in certain products and things. You know, there were there were there was a, there was a lot of uh, scandal, for lack of a better word, going on. So as and the more, but the more the public found out about this the more they turned on the movie industry and the more, and as I said, box office had started to go down because of these scandals. So uh, when Will Hayes came to Hollywood, he inserted a morality clause, which basically says, if you don't be, if you behave in a way that the studio finds you your behavior immoral, the studio can kick you out. So as a result, which means basically, which, which means the studio can kick you out for anything. If you were caught, if you came to drunk one day to work, that could be it. So it gave the studio ultimate control. So if there was um, a, a player who they wanted to get rid of, they would just be able to get rid of them based on on their actions. And of course, any player who was like became a big movie star was making money. They did their best to, to hide their their discretion so they could uh, so they can continue making money for the studio. This is called Hollywood. Your play. Yes. So do you within the play? Do you see Anything of the studio system itself in terms of like being on a set or being on mm-hmm. a movie? Um, because I haven't seen the play yet. Yes. I'm just curious if you're inserting any of that into the play. Oh, absolutely. No, I mean, you know, the, the thing about early Hollywood, it was really fun. And also the thing about silent movies, because there was no dialogue, as the actors were performing, the director would be slightly off camera, you know, telling them what to do. You know, saying, look sadder, I need you happier. You know, they were mouthing a couple of lines of dialogue, but that was, you know, irrelevant almost. So absolutely, the play actually starts with um, one of our heroines, Mary Miles Minter, uh, uh, who's a 19-year-old child star, sort of uh, uh, an early version of Shirley Temple, but who's sort of outgrown that, but who's still famous and who's still trying to be a child on camera, you know, crying her eyes out, and the director trying to coax her how to uh, cry convincingly. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. No, that it, and, you know, we see Mabel Norman hit by a pie. I mean, there's, there's a bunch of uh, uh, movie set uh, um, shenanigans going on, which is how they did movies in those days. 
talk a little bit about the way the play is because mm-hmm. it does you talked about it being kind of a whodunit mm-hmm. and there's also elements of kind of this film noir also yeah. yeah well it's very much even though film noir was really in the uh, late 30s and 40s where it really came to be and our play takes place in 1920 I just think we so associate film noir with black and white murder mysteries and this is you know and then this very much is in, in that film but it also has elements I think in the design of uh, German expressionism which was uh, obviously in, in, in silent movies a, a big facet of it uh, and, and though and also film noir because I think of the lighting and the richness of the texture of black and white, as as well as German Expressionism, is very theatrical. So uh, Chris Ashley, our director, uh, has uh, it's going to it's it's a very epic play. It's fifteen people, which is very large for a play. It has multiple scenes, like a movie does. So it moves very quickly uh, in a very theatrical way. So I think it's going to be a unique experience because I can't remember the last time I really saw a noir thriller on stage. So it's going to move like a movie, and it's going to be as fun as a movie. I understand you actually have someone playing musical cues, kind of movie-style musical cues on stage. We sure do. Wayne Barker, who wrote the score here, uh, I think got a Tony nomination for Peter and the Star Catcher, is not only our pianist on stage, but he's writing a score. A lot of the show is underscored. That evokes some of the time of the 20s, but not just silent movie vocabulary, which I think is a little pastiche now, a little cliched when we hear it. There are also a lot of other, obviously, large movements in the 1920s, jazz, some more experimental, atonal music that he sort of is drawing from to really make it its own unique mix. But the music definitely underscores a lot of what's going on in in the play. And also there are points of the play where we the play becomes a silent movie, where the murder is reenacted in a silent movie milieu, for lack of a better word. But I, one thing which I'm so excited about the play Hollywood is that I do think it's going to be a unique experience. I don't think anyone's seen anything quite like this. And how is it working on a stage production where you are trying to pay kind of homage or reference to another medium of film? Mm-hmm. What's the point of like blending it where you want to keep something theatrical, but you also want to reference film? I mean, what's that kind of hitting that right blend and mix? Yeah. Well, it's a delicate balance because there was also a point in this process where I was like, well, why didn't I just make write a movie? Screenplay. <laughs> but I'm a theater animal, and I love theater, and Chris Ashley is a theater animal. And so he was the first director I gave the script to, and I thought, can we actually do a film-like presentation on stage that has to be done on stage? That's not... That if you basically translate it to a movie, you would have to rewrite the whole thing because it's written for a theatrical vein. So a lot of it is how... You don't have close-ups on stage. So the dialogue needs to be a little, I don't know, gra- more stylized. It's very much, you know, almost stylized from the what we know from 30 and, four, and 40s movies. But it has to be its own unique animal. So, yeah, it's, as, I, as I said, you know, we, we've work, we're working hard not to make it a Law & Order episode. Uh, there's definitely some police procedural scenes, but every time those get too long or too complicated, we're like, no, 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 let's make this about the people. Like, let's have the the, the thriller whodunit aspect definite part of it, and we're going to give you that, and we're going to tell you who we think did it. But uh, let's also make sure it's about the people and the larger themes at work here. How much research did you do into this? Did you want to try to find out everything you could about what had happened? Or did you want to stop at a certain point so that you're 
kind of mm -hmm. creative juices could flow without being kind yeah. of curtailed by what you knew was fact? That's an excellent question. Whenever I do a historical uh, piece, I always research, research, research my brains out. I read books. There are websites. Um, there's not a whole lot about this murder, shockingly, but there are several books. There's a huge website called Taylor Taylorology. Uh, which is epic and massive. Uh, and then I've also read a lot of books just on the time period and saw movies and, and you know did research in that way. But I'm a believer you research, you research, you research, then you put the research down and write the play because it can be overwhelming. you know like like there's you know we're dealing with at least four or five main characters here. You could write a play about each of them just in this time period. Uh, you basically at some point have to put it down and say, okay, where's the drama in this? And what's the story I want to tell? How do I want to manipulate these characters? And I'm very, I was we've been very concerned as we put the play up to make sure the general feel of it is historically accurate, but 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 I'm also not a slave to it. And there's certain things I've changed. There's certain things which I know are not, did not happen that I put in the play just to give it sort of dramatic uh, heft. But I do think the feel of the play will honor uh, the time and the period. And also since this is not a, it doesn't deal with an important political time or anything like that, it's about movie people, um, you know, I felt I had a little more leeway to sort of make things up to, to juggle the truth a bit for dramatic purposes. It's also interesting about these characters, like many people come to Hollywood, they made themselves up. Most of them had other names, you know, the other lives, and they came to town and they said, this is who I want to be. And the pe most of the people in the show are, became very good at that and became other people and very famous, successful people for a while. Do you think that what happened during that time period in terms of the morality clause mm -hmm. and Will Hayes coming in, do you think we're feeling any impact of it still today in Hollywood? Well, you know, the amazing thing about Will Hayes and his code, I mean, he was in Hollywood for 35 years or so. Uh, and the Hayes Code really stuck around till the mid-60s when suddenly all of these European art films, you know, were coming over and then suddenly people started cursing in movies. The Hayes Code was eventually replaced in the 60s when the times changed too quickly for the Hayes Code by the, radi the rating system which we have today. Yeah, so do, I, I, don't know if, I don't know if Will Hayes himself, if, if his influence is still felt, but there are certainly people like Will Hayes. I mean, there's always, there's always moralists and there's always censors. But in trying to write Will Hayes, I mean, I really wanted to write a real person. I mean, I might not agree with his politics. He was very right-wing, very conservative. But I wanted to write a real person who really believed in something. And I will say, as a fan of the movies of that era, there, there is something to be said about artists giving limits and they have to work around those limits. And some of those movies are really witty and adult and sexy because of the restraints more so than some movies today, which are unrestrained and are not as sexy and not as witty and not as adult, I think, in many ways. That wasn't Will Hayes' purpose. His, his purpose was to hit an agenda, which he wanted to uh, uh, um, impart on the country, which he did. But, um, but you know, but, there, but having that, some great art came out of that time, too. So, you know, I, I think, uh, like anything, it's, it's, it's not black and white. Well, it's interesting because there is that where the restrictions, I think, did create an atmosphere where people had to be more clever. Yeah. But the films that came out like between 1930 and 1934, those pre-code mm -hmm. films, are amazing. Yeah. I go to the Turner Classic Movie Festival yeah. and they always show one or two of those. And you watch them and you go, wow, they were making films like that back then? 
It's amazing that that code, which I think came late, mid, like a pre-cut 34 maybe, it's amazing that that code clamped, how the code clamped down on stuff. And, and those early films, there's some great ones, you know, and there's, you know, there's nudity, there's menage a trois, there's all sorts of things. And they're very adult, you know, they're, they're really smart and many of them hold up. And yeah, and you, you know, and of course, the other side of that, what happens if the Hayes Code never came? What happens if they just sort of kept pushing the boundary and pushing the boundary and pushing the boundary. Well, I also love that some of the people who got away with the most in those early days were like Cecil Bill DeMille and the people who did the Bible epics <laughs> because they had like the sex and violence because it was in the Bible. So their excuse, well, well, this prostitute was in the Bible. So we can, you know, they had an orgy in the Bible and they had, you know, violence in the Bible. So we have to show it as it was. I mean, that's sort of how they got away with it, which is probably the ultimate irony. So how did you fall in love with this time period of early Hollywood movies? Uh, you know, when I like anything, when I was growing up, for whatever reason, I loved. Uh, I grew up in the 1970s and before uh, VHS tapes, and there were all of these uh, old movies on television. I grew up in uh, New Jersey, right outside of New York, and there was something called the 4:30 movie. I still remember. Came out at 4:30 every weekday, and had like you know chopped up versions about you know Sunset Boulevard and all about Eve and King Kong and all these sort of great movies that were so well written. And I sort of think I got my love of dialogue from them, actually. So I don't know what makes a, 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 you know, I don't know why I was somehow drawn to these types of films early on more so than uh, some more contemporary films uh, that came on. But, and then I got, I got a little older and then I went to college and started going to art, you know, see art houses, which would which show these old movies, which uh, existed then in a way they don't now. You know, I really just fell in love with them. I mean, seeing some of those films on the big screen, I mean, the first time, you know, I saw Sunset Boulevard, which I keep thinking of now because of... Uh, uh, Norma Desmond is uh, very much echoed the woman, um, Mary Miles Minter, who was in uh, one of the main characters in this show, who was a huge movie star in 1919, 1918, um, and is forgotten now, really became Norma Desmond. I mean, like, was a real-life Norma Desmond by the time she died in the 19... Uh, I think she died in 1980, early 1980s. I just, you know, I just sort of fell in love with them and the, the black-and-white photography and the dialogue... You know, and and that those you know early movie stars were really just um, compelling to me. Well, and you mentioned Sunset Boulevard. I mean, it kind of just just her name, Desmond, kind of echoes back to the, <laughs> the murder. Yeah, and I th- I've read some you know I don't know some movie buffs who who think that that's where they got he got the name from, it, just that that era, and you know the silent movies and. Yeah, Norma Desmond with the William Desmond Taylor. Did he influence her? Maybe. And Mary Miles Minter, who, if you come see the show, is as compelling a real life character as I think I've ever come across in Hollywood. And uh, and she became Norma Desmond. She went a little crazy, lived alone in this, like, you know, like I don't know, just sort of gothic mansion by the end of her life. Still talked about the old days like they were yesterday. Uh, I think was a little. Ha- I think was. I think grew happy. I think actually when her career ended, she grew happier than she was when she was a child star. It's fa- it's fascinating. It's and it's unique what 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 Hollywood can do. You know what that kind of um, fame and money and attention can do to someone, especially when it happens and they're so young and they haven't fully developed as an adult. I remember once of all people, I'll never forget this quote. Uh, like whoever played uh, Danny Partridge on the Partridge Family gave a quote on a television show once and I guess he had it it was a child star with a trouble life and he said this the, pro- the problem was one day we were cute and the next day we weren't and our careers were over and that's exactly what happens right you're cute and then you're a kid and you're not and suddenly you're not and 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 you have to deal with that which is hard and not everybody can turn into like Uncle Fester or what 
<laughs> <That's> <laughs> he was, like it. Wasn't he a child star? <laughs> Maybe. Or like, you know, like people that, you know, you see like, like a Jodie Foster who was a child star who went to become, you know, yeah. terrific actress and director and, you know. Seems perfectly normal. So, but who knows? But it's it's a tough thing, and you know this was also. And every time you know I work on this play, this is the early days of Hollywood when there weren't role models, there weren't examples. They were making it up as they go along. I mean, you know what they used to do in silent movies? There would be a fire down the block, so they would all jump in a car with a camera and an actress, and put the ca- actress in front of the camera, the fire, and scream, and then write a little movie about it. You know, I mean, that's it was it was sort of a seat of the pants for a lot of years. So it's it was an amazing time, and uh, I think just a very rich time to sort of explore uh, on stage. Do you think people coming to the play need to know anything about uh, this case, or do you prefer them kind of coming with nothing? Uh, yeah, no, I think you I think you could come as as long as you've seen a movie in your life and you know what that is, you can come, and I think hopefully you'll be enthralled and and, and thrilled by uh, Hollywood. No, no, because I mean. You know, we present everything you need to know about the murder, about who he was, and and then we develop the the, the the people around him, especially these three women and Will Hayes, the censor, and what they meant to him and what they meant to the birth of Hollywood and, and how this death affected them all. You know, and it's, 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 as I said, it's the beginning of celebrity culture, which is a major theme in this play. And there'll be nothing in this play that people don't recognize that still doesn't happen today. You described yourself as a theater animal. Have you ever done a film screenplay or worked in film at all? Uh, no, I used to work in television when I was much younger. Uh, the, the only th- I, uh, my show Memphis, which we started here at La Jolla Playhouse, I, I sold the screenplay. I wrote the screenplay to that, and I sold it to that, and that's in the Hollywood mill right now. But no, I, I never really uh, worked in movies. I always loved theater more. Um, I would like to work in old movies. I would like to work in 1940s movies. So uh, that's not going to happen. So uh, I like a contemporary theater right now. Yeah. So did your love of theater uh, emerge at the same time you were watching these mm-hmm. films? Yeah, I did. I was. Uh, I grew up in New Jersey, right outside New York, and my uh, parents would always take me uh, to see shows when we were little. We'd take the family to see shows. It was uh, sort of an Italian-American family, and I think one of the, uh, the tenets of that was you should culture your kids. So they always took us to museums and plays and, you know, the trips to historical sites. So uh, I fell in love with theater, and the first show I ever saw on Broadway, I remember it, like it was yesterday, it was 1776. And I remember where I was sitting and when the lights came up and the Continental Congress, that great early image of the you know, everyone sitting around. Um, it just And I was just hooked. It was put a fork in me, I was done. And I just loved theater and I thought, oh, I would love to be involved in theater. And I don't know how, but you know, I was, I was a little kid. And then I started to write. And then as I got older and I started to discover plays and stray plays and started reading plays and seeing plays. And then I just started to write. And I wrote for a long time and no one cared. And uh, I went, I got a job in advertising out of college. And uh, I was there for about 10 years. And uh, I started writing, you know, one act plays that turned into full act plays at night until, uh, until just by force. <laughs> of will and constantly trying to get better at it I sent in some plays that started getting accepted at little theaters here and there and why do you think you gravitated more towards theater than film is it because as a writer writers tend to be a little more respected in the theater world (laughs) yeah that is an understatement I do and you know I've I've had had some flirtations with television movies and so I sort of know what that's like and the the control a writer gets in theater is amazing because Unlike film and television, in theater, a playwright owns the copyright to his script. 
So if you're a producer and I give you the script, you can say, I want to do this, but you have to change this. And if I say, no, I don't want to change this, then the producer can say, okay, I'm not doing the play, but they can't take the play and give it to another writer and say, change this. And in movies and television, that's exactly what happens. You're considered a work for hire. If I sell, you know, um, uh, Paramount Studios uh, a script, they can they take it and then they own the copyright and then they can hire other writers to do what they want, which is why many screenwriters uh, uh, pull their hair out all the time. <laughs> the ones I know. And you know, in theater, we have other frustrations, which is how do I get my play produced? Blah, you know how you know how do I get it seen? So, but the thing is, I am always, yours, always in control. And as a result, I think you have more respect, and there's a more a, a better sense of collaboration in theater than oftentimes uh, that happen in Hollywood. Now, the production you're working on currently mm-hmm. of Hollywood here at the La Jolla Playhouse is your script locked at this point, or are you still kind of finessing it? Oh no! Well, we're two and a half weeks into rehearsal uh, right now, and I'm still finessing it. It's an epic production. It's 15 people. It covers much ground in terms of its uh, time period and uh, locations. So it's almost, even though it's a straight play, it's almost like uh, putting up a musical because there's just a lot of elements. The director, Chris Ashley, and I, who and Chris runs La Jolla Playhouse, have worked together many times. So I think we're very good collaborators. And we enjoy, at this point, trying new things. You know, sometimes Chris will say, oh, what if a new line there? Or, uh, and then we were just talking last night, we were talking to the actors, and I had an idea for another scene. So Chris is like, well, let's try it. You know, so we're at that point. What's wonderful about La Jolla Playhouse is that you get four weeks rehearsal, which is like a Broadway rehearsal schedule. It's, it's, it's rather uh, uncommon in, uh, in uh, regional theater. So you actually have time to play around. And since it's a new production, you know, once, once you give your script, and you hear actors say it, it's, it's a whole different animal than what you've heard in your head. So, and especially when you have great actors like we have in Hollywood here, the, I, I think I'd be a fool not to sort of like play around with it and rewrite and, and hear different things. And there are things I read, I'm like, oh, what, did I do? what was I thinking? I got a better idea. I just came up with a better idea last night after rehearsal. I was talking to Chris and one of the actors in it, and she was asking a question about her scene and why a character does this, and then we were talking about another aspect of it. I'm like, you know what, let me go home and rewrite that. So I wrote a new page, and I think it's better. So so that, that kind of stuff is uh, exciting, actually. So how long did it take you to get from the germ of this idea to the draft that you sent over to Chris? I've been fascinated, I wouldn't say obsessed, but maybe obsessed, <laughs> but fascinated by this case for many years. So what I did was I first wrote just sort of an outline of it. And early on, I thought maybe this is a musical, just because the time period's so evocative. You know, early Hollywood glamour. These characters by nature are larger than life. I thought, well, that's all context for a musical. But then, you know, it's very hard to write a musical about murder, about a murder because musicals need to stop for songs, and murder mysteries don't want to stop for songs. Murder mysteries want to... They're like farces. It's hard to write a musical farce, and it's hard to write a murder mystery farce because they both need to keep the locomotive of the story going. So um, I wrote sort of a bad draft and talked to a couple of songwriters, and I was like, yeah, now I'm going to turn this into a play. And the trick about turning this into a play, because it is a murder case, essentially your lead character dies off 15 minutes into the play. It's almost like a psycho when they kill Jenna Lee 15 minutes in, and then you have to figure out, well, who is this now? Who is this about? And I think a typical thing, my first thought, and a typical thing was, oh, I sh- most of the times 
when people write these murder mysteries, you put a detective in the middle of it and you follow the detective and you make the detective a character and you give him a problem that has to be solved along with the murder. I was like, I don't want to do that. It's, it seems like a movie and I'm just not interested in the detective and I love these characters and the, these real life people were more interesting to me than that. So it took me a while to figure out, years literally, to, and I kept coming back to it to say, well, what's the center of this? Who do I, because I know like, a director's going to say, well, who do I follow? Who does the audience follow in a play? Uh, and then when I was just, uh, you know, when my massive research on the show, I just read uh, an article said, you know, that uh, Will Hayes, the, the famous censor, came to town like two months, uh, I think actually a month before the show, the murder happened. Um, and he was hired by the studios to run this new thing called the Motion Picture Distributors, Distributors of America, which was essentially this new arm that so for public relations and also to keep Washington off their back because Washington was starting to come in and saying we may have to censor you and they were like no no we'll do it ourselves and they needed someone to cover up all of the wrongdoings that they were doing so they hired Will Hayes and once I realized that he was there at the time I thought oh that's an interesting lead character a censor uh, who sort of comes in and and you know basically cleans up this mess this public relations mess uh, for Hollywood, and then eventually takes over Hollywood in many ways. So a, a quick answer to your question is this took me uh, longer than most plays because I didn't, know what, I didn't know what my in, I call it my in, my angle on it was. Like, what was, what was my angle on this? And then once I figured out him, then it probably took about a year. I wasn't just working on this, but probably a year to really get it into something that, you know, I was ready to show to Chris, and then Chris immediately liked it, and we did a couple of uh, readings where you just basically hire actors to read it out loud, and then you hear it, and you can see what comes a lot, you know, what people are interested in, what comes to life or not. So um, yeah, so it's been a couple of years since uh, since that whole process started. You mentioned that Will Hayes is not a character that you necessarily agree with in terms of mm -hmm. his politics. So how difficult was it to make him kind of this lead character that you follow through when he might not be necessarily the most appealing character, or the character that maybe you identify with the most? Well, I love writing people who aren't me. I mean, I think it's a really wonderful thing for like I, one reasons I like writing dramas because you get to write people who you agree with, people who you know you disagree with, and you you know you have to find the common humanity. I mean, he was someone. He wasn't out to do evil. He was out to to. It was what his morality was, and this was he really thought that this was the right thing to do. Um, so I, I I think that the gift that writing has given me is I've real I realized early on that we're all the same. We all um, we're in different bodies, but we all want the same things. We want we want love we want to love someone, we want to be loved, we want a purpose in life, we want to feel like what we're doing matters. And, and sort of everything else, I think gender and sexuality and politics and all that are is just a shell. So once you figure out that, you just have to sort of put yourself in his point of view and say, okay, this is this is what he wants. Now what would a what would a person how would they do it go ahead and do this? And the thing about Will Hayes is he actually what he really was and he had to be to, to, to do all this is he was charming. Like he was very good at public relations. So I thought, well if he can charm the newspapers and, and, and charm the studio heads, he must be able to charm a lot of people. And so that was a really helpful with him um, in in the play. Um, when I read his autobiography, uh, and, and you know, and he sort of was a guy from Indiana. He was sort of this local guy who sort of made good. And I thought, well, can you imagine being this local guy and you come to uh, 
Hollywood and all these suddenly famous people and, 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 and like how do you how do you actually get control of them? You know? Well you have to ha- you have to be steal your reserve and you have to really believe in what you do. Oh this is bad, very, very bad. Well hide his death from the press, say we're still looking for him now by his time. Time for what? Ruby did it. So what if he did? Jesus Christ, of course he did. But what if he did? Listen to me. Low lights don't scam their way into someone else's life and then someone else just happens to kill the guy. Uh, but he owned the wrong gun, your sole witness can't identify him. You go the hell back to Oklahoma! Because I'm from Indiana. Get out of here, you're done. Uh, you couldn't catch Sands until he was dead, and now you have nothing to tie him to the crime, and you say I'm the one who's done? I've had enough of you. Hey, hey, I've not had enough of you! But you have to have a certain charm, and uh, so I gave him a sort of like, uh, you know, Midwestern uh, charm that maybe he uh, puts on as, uh, just as the, the actors who come to Hollywood create their own personas, he creates his own persona in this. So it was, you know, it was great fun writing him and I'm still, as I tweak, I still, um, you know, keep writing more things for him because it's actually enjoyable trying to get inside someone's head. I'm really looking forward to seeing it because Will Hayes as a character in Hollywood, um, having brought in all this censorship is someone that I've always kind of probably maybe demonized a little yes. bit. I don't know. So I'm very interested to see yeah. your perspective right. on him. Well, uh, also our uh, actor playing him, Patrick Kerr, uh, is a fantastic actor and one of the reasons we cast him is because he's so warm-hearted in life and charming, and so he brings that to Will Hayes, which is, I'm curious what you think of him now, because he really, you know, he really does. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, the, Will Hayes is, he's, you know, like him or not, he's an important figure. Yeah, so we'll, we'll, we'll see. But, it, but as I said, it's, it, it also gives the play, um, Will Hayes and the, the rise of conservatism in Hollywood gives the play a real... Uh, conflict in the center of it for all of these characters who otherwise just want to be, you know, want to be movie stars and artists and express themselves and live this very glamorous life. He is the sort of the, every plane is a conflict and Will Hayes is the conflict uh, on top of the murder mystery. You know, I think it's, I think the Will Hayes character actually makes it a play and not, uh, uh, you know, a Law and Order episode. So as you're approaching kind of the final version mm-hmm. of Hollywood. What are you feeling most satisfied with or most proud of about this production? I think it's unique. I don't think anyone's seen a play quite like this in both its production and the story. You know, I don't. I, I can assure you that there weren't 20 scripts this was competing with here that took place during the silent movie era. So I think it's unique, and I think... It has hopefully a lot of wit, like old movies that when they started having dialogue, especially the early black and white ones have. And I think, the, you know, there's you, these characters are very compelling because they're larger than life, but they're also very compassionate. And they're put through the mill in this show. And most don't come out too well. Most were sort of destroyed by this scandal in one way or another, even, even the ones who were perfectly innocent. So I think it's 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 really going to be quite the ride. And I think ultimately it's a very uh, touching show, which is a weird thing to say about a murder mystery. <laughs> but I think, especially with this cast, who are just wonderful, you know, it's going to give you a lot to think about when you leave. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. My pleasure. That was playwright Joe DiPietro. Here is my interview with director Christopher Ashley. He's also the artistic director of the La Jolla Playhouse. You are currently working on a production of a play called Hollywood. Tell me about this time frame and kind of how the play references Hollywood itself and movie making. 
So the play Hollywood is set in 1922 uh, in the world of silent films. And it was kind of a famous case in its day. It was one of the big celebrity murders, famous the way the OJ trial was famous in kind of our lifetimes. Um, Lesser known now, but it was a huge media event, the death of a silent film director. Um, William Desmond Taylor. And everybody in Hollywood was a suspect at some point. Mabel Norman, who was quite famous from kind of getting pies in the faces, mm-hmm. Max Sennett movies, and uh, kind of child star of the moment, Mary Miles Minter was a big uh, candidate for being the killer. And his butler and a former valet and all kinds of different people were at some point in the in the crosshairs of the press. And it's a kind of noir whodunit. And at the same time as Hollywood is trying to figure out who killed this director, Will Hayes is arriving. He's just been appointed the head of the Motion Picture Association of America. Um, and if you if you know your Hollywood history, you know he went on to create something called The Code, which was a, a real censorship. It was a very strict set of rules about what you could show and not show in Hollywood movies. So basically, early days of movies, they were movies were very alive, had like like really could show physicality and sensuality and drug use was was shown. Really the full spectrum of American life was on screen. But once the Hayes Code came in, uh, movies turned into sort of Doris Day as, uh, ethic. So we're watching a man arriving in Hollywood who's going to clamp down on the Sodom and Gomorrah aspects of Hollywood and make sure that everything that comes out of Hollywood is clean as a whistle. So it's kind of, it's a moment of real kind of cesspool, um, drugs and, and, and murder and uh, everyone sleeping with everybody. Hollywood was a, was, a, was a rough and randy place. And there's a guy who's arriving to uh, clean it up. I often feel the people of Sodom and Gomorrah would come to Hollywood and say, this is too disgusting for us, we're leaving. But the people here just do what they do to get ahead. So I do what I do to get ahead of them. And Will Hayes is actually kind of the character that takes you through the story, correct? He is. He's, he ends up being the narrator of the show, this guy from Indiana who was the postmaster general before he was brought out to Hollywood, really like the most red state person imaginable uh, is brought in to kind of govern Hollywood. And he's the eyes we see the show through. Talk about the style that the play is done in, because there are moments when it kind of is like being on a movie set or like a silent movie. Yeah, directing this is sort of a director's dream. The show weaves in and out of silent film. So we see the murder as though it was a silent uh, film murder. And then as different people tell you who the suspect is, you keep seeing the, the murder from different people's perspective, but it always kind of falls back into silent film and then back to reality. Um, we have a live uh, pianist on stage who's scoring it very much the way a silent film would be scored. Um, where it's very fun to kind of figure out like how in the current stage vocabulary do you say silent film in uh for for many years that you you sort of see that strobing idea right like that you, you throw strobe at it and you know it's early film and it feels too familiar to me so we're actually playing around with um project whenever we're in a silent film we project onto actors all the little imperfections of hairs and little blemishes that old film gets so suddenly people have that kind of old film look to them actually projected onto their skin which is incredibly fun. We also have a a group of actors who are incredibly confident in navigating between really kind of grounded naturalistic acting and the 
very expressive, emotive 1920s film style. So for an actor, it's a real meal that they get to act kind of across the whole spectrum of styles. And our designers are having a field day. You talked about how you have Will Hayes coming in and trying to clamp down on Hollywood. Uh, Is this also about kind of the cult of celebrity too? Very much so. This is a, a moment, the moment I think America figured out, oh, movie stars are sexy, interesting, fascinating, fun, and we're going to be interested in every tiny detail of their lives. So it was kind of the moment that, you know, Photoplay and then later Life magazine were all kind of deeply involved in reporting the lives of these movie stars. And they became, um, they have no privacy shortly hereafter from 1922 on. Paparazzi became a huge thing, right? No matter when you go out, out into the world, you're constantly being photographed. And there's a very aggressive barrage of the people who want to take your picture and publicize you. Any of those vultures try and touch me, break their goddamn faces. With pleasure. And definitely it was, this is the beginning of the American cult of celebrity. Now, another thing that happens after Will Hayes coming in is this notion of the morality clause. How does that come into play in this story? Will Hayes was actually in life brought into Hollywood because there was a big backlash against Hollywood. And there was a sense that like religious groups, many kind of middle American kind of social groups and political action groups were very upset that Hollywood was basically peddling smut. There was a sense that it was they were basically high class pornographers and that the lives that they were living were very kind of lurid as well. So, um, you know, in the last uh, in this election, when. Ted Cruz talks about New York values. It's the, That's the same impulse then as now. This idea that Hollywood and New York are somehow suspect. They're, they give themselves too much permission. And there was a real groundswell of angers and really like descending box office at this moment in the 20s, which feels very much like a lot of the forces that are fueling the Trump campaign currently. You know, there's a sense right now, all the politicians are having to deal with how angry and upset Americans are and a sense of something's gone awry. That was very much true in the 20s as well. So Hayes is the guy who's supposed to come in and create a sense for America that, that the movies are on their side and are, are cleaner and more moral than the things they've seen before. And had you been familiar with this, the murder case of William Desmond Taylor before... Joe brought you this play? I knew a little bit about it. Uh, there's, a, there's a great graphic novel about the murder uh, that's been around for, I don't know, 20 or 30 years that I, that I really love. You know, if you watch late night television, you probably have come across it. But definitely if you say something about this murder, most people don't know about it anymore. It's really kind of receded into the mists of history. But it was the biggest event ever in its moment. Uh, and it really does rhyme and resonate with the world that we live in today. So did you do any research into the case itself, or did you just work off of the, the text of the play? There are more research books in the in the rehearsal room than you can believe. The walls are covered with pictures of the actual movie stars, the actual figures, the DAs, the studio heads. Uh, our very wonderful dramaturg, Shirley Fishman, has been kind of uh, dealing out uh, biographies and different research materials. The cast is delved deep into it. At this point, they're all much more expert on the individual uh, points of, of history and fact in their character's life than I am. So they're constantly bringing wonderful new tidbits that they discovered in one of the biographies that they read overnight. Um, I definitely dug into it, but one of the things 
that's amazing about this case is so much was written about it and and all of it disagrees with itself right like the fact like what were the facts incredibly subjective the police really bungled the investigation from the first moment they let the the studios come in and kind of clean up the crime scene so nobody got into trouble who was an employee so all, there was like no fingerprints the body was moved all the letters and all the like all the, his personal correspondence was was taken from the, the house so definitely the question of what really happened is a fantastic guessing game and very hard to pin down actual fact. This play is not in its final form right at this point in time. So what's this process like of fine-tuning it as you go along? So it's a brand new play. This is a world premiere production. And what that means at the Playhouse is um, every day in rehearsals, Joe is rewriting. We're restaging the rewrites. It's It's very much an evolving script every single day. I would say a hundred page script, we've probably had four hundred pages of rewrites in 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 two weeks. That what does that mean? Every page has changed four times. It's really and it's you know, the actors love being part of the creation of a new play and really kind of the character is being written to respond to how they're acting it, which is big fun for the actors. Stage management is kind of pulling their hair out. They're, they're, they're trying to organize the, the many, many, you know, hundreds of pages that are being generated every uh, 30 seconds. And it's one of those great experiences where you're creating something absolutely new, where the playhouse gets to be a greenhouse for, you know, a, a new seedling. And where the author is incredibly both excited and respectful about what the actors are doing and very much vice versa. I mean, the actors just love um, sort of acting for Joe. And then Joe arrives the next day with a scene that takes all of the strengths of what they were doing and also great new opportunities. So the beginning of the day when we do rewrites uh, has a slightly uh, Christmas morning feeling to it every day. And tell me about the role of William Hayes and how that has evolved during this process because he's a really interesting character. I mean, for me, it's, it's interesting because, you know, I've kind of vilified him because he brought in the code and cracked down on these movies. But having him as a central character uh, is really interesting. And do you present him as, you know, charming, likable? Uh, talk a little bit about the, the evolution that that character's gone through. Yeah, Will Hayes, I, I too, like I started this process thinking, oh, Will Hayes is the devil. <laughs> you know, that he was like the censor-in-chief of, of Hollywood for, you know, half a century. Um, but the actor has taken a very kind of human approach and and the writing is, we're watching this guy accumulate power, but when he walks on stage at the beginning of the show, there's a kind of Jimmy Stewart, aw shucks, you know, I'm so lucky to be here, I'm so impressed, I'm such a fan. You know, he really enters the play um, with a great degree of charm and humility. And as the play goes on, um, he sheds both of those things. <laughs> And how is the actor, Patrick Kerr plays him? So how, what kind of a, a part did he play in evolving that character? What kind of input did he have? Um, you know, Patrick uh, has, I've worked with him uh, many times over 30 years. Um, we were both at Yale at roughly the same time. Uh, and uh, like he brings, he's done incredible amounts of research. So he really knows the history of, of Hayes and brings that into the rehearsal room. He also is one of those actors who will can really make anything work. You know what I mean? He's an incredible ingenuity, incredible craft, 
sense of humor and depth of humanity that are really startling. So if it's not working on Patrick, you know that there's something you actually have to grapple with in the writing, which is actually the, the, the great way to, to, to work on new writing. Um, you can really de depend on that actor to bring out everything that's there. And he's so excited to work on anything new. And if you don't change it, he will come back and like spend every night working and reworking it until he has um, squeezed every bit of juice out of the orange of the text. And what appealed to you in particular about deciding to put this play on? I love the period. Um, I, uh, I, I personally love the kind of whodunit um, aspects of a murder mystery. I also think there's something about the 1920s, and here we are, you know, almost 100 years later, that seem like a version of the same moment. There's this sense that America has gone off the rails that Americans are angry and that something's got to change and got to change really soon. Like it's, it's, it's almost that, that pre-revolutionary feeling. And, you know, I turn on the television every day and, and watch these politicians trying to channel that anger of the American people. And I feel like, oh, well, that's this play, while not being about, the, it's really about the 20s and really about a murder mystery. But there's also something that feels very familiar about the moment um, and it's exciting to explore the 20s while you also get to explore the current world. All right. Well, thank you very much. Absolutely. That was director Christopher Ashley. Now for my interview with actor Patrick Kerr, who plays Will Hayes. You may also remember him as the geeky Noel Shemsky from TV's Frasier show. Transition. Yeah, yeah, I got an exclusive. No, a buddy at the cop station just called it in, but I'm going to want the front page. No, the front goddamn page an eyewitness just came out of the woodwork. They're about to question her. You play Will Hayes in the new play Hollywood. Tell me about how you feel about this character. How do you describe him? He's a, a deep conservative, and uh, he, he's from Indiana, and so he has a very strong conservative background. He was the postmaster general of the United States, so I, he went to school at, in southern Indiana, in Wabash County. He went to Wabash College, which is one of the only colleges that still exist that are exclusively a men's college, which is pretty interesting. And uh, uh, I've been watching videos on YouTube and stuff about like Wabash College and seeing these tours. And you know, the Southern Indiana people have a little bit of a Southern accent, which is interesting, but it's close to Louisville. It's between Louisville and, and like Indianapolis. So. So I've been interested in, like, who is this guy? What makes him tick? He's um, deeply religious, deeply ambitious, and he has a sort of uh, he's smarter than he likes to— he hides his intelligence in a, in a G. Willikers, gosh, gosh, G. Wish, gosh, oh, golly, you know, kind of uh, persona, which is really fun to play as an actor. But he is—he has that kind of sort of fire inside that—, that that people who are truly moved by a passion, you know, have, you know, that are sort of, uh, he's a very, he would be a, if he were today, he'd be a member of the Tea Party. Don't know if he'd be an absolute fundamentalist because he's, I don't know if he would truly be of a literal interpretation of the Bible, but perhaps he would be. But he certainly is um, a bit a Puritan, very smart. I mean, he, I mean, you think he, uh, he has a lot of shortcomings in his sort of worldview. I think he isn't very inclusive. There's a little scene he has with a guy who's foreign, 
and he has a suspicion of foreigners, I think, and uh, he has a bit of contempt for, for people who are libertines and sec, sec, uh, sexually and, uh, and people who are not God-fearing, not God-fearing, you know, salt of the earth, kind of middle of America kind of guy. He's that guy with a brain. The scene you were just doing, you were kind of sparring a bit with the police detective. Right, right. He was actually the district attorney. Oh, okay. Yeah, he goes to the he goes to the district attorney to uh, there. There's been a murder. A famous uh, Hollywood director has been murdered. It's the scandalous murder of uh, William Desmond Taylor, which happened in I guess 1922, and uh, it rocked Hollywood. It was it was on the heels of the Fatty Arbuckle travesty. The, what the playwright Joe T. B. Pietro has done is uh, had Hayes sort of at the same time coming in sort of trying to solve maybe or be at least interested in sort of who committed this murder. The murder's never been solved. People would say it's been covered up and stuff like that but he has his suspicions and Hayes is meeting the district attorney and he discovers in the scene that the district attorney has really sort of not done very good police work in uh, sort of when when the body was found of this famous director and it smells a little bit like the district attorney is in the pocket of the movie studios which he was it seems to be so he has a very strong interest in protecting all the movie people from sort of being indicted in this crime and what do you enjoy about playing this character I like him because he's so different than I am. He's so different. As I said earlier, he, he, he like sort of hides his intelligence between a G-shucks, golly, kind of thing. And I think I'm just the opposite. I try to sort of seem much more intelligent than I am. So I like that about him. He's very different. His political views are completely different than I. He's very, very conservative, and I'm the opposite. He has a very strong faith, uh, which I don't. I, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm an atheist, but I... I don't, I have nothing but questions. I don't feel I understand God. And I think this guy, Will Hayes, feels he understands God and knows God's intention for us, which I don't presume to do. It's interesting having Will Hayes kind of be the character that guides us through this because most people, if they're familiar with him at all, probably have this kind of vilified image of, oh, that's the guy who brought all that censorship in in Hollywood. So how is it being this kind of character that, weaves through here and do you think that he's a character that audiences are going to like or find appealing yeah i think he is because i think he's funny and i think he's uh very much a a, a man of the people there's a sincerity to him that is uh he's truly committed to what he's sort of doing and the truth of the matter is is that the reason he was able to he brought all the censorship in and stuff like that was in a way he helped Hollywood because Hollywood was sort of going through a very hard time and because uh, because of all the scandal and America wasn't ready for that it Hollywood was a product that was too too illicit too elitist too permissive the atmosphere for the average American uh, which in the middle of the country who that's who you're making your movies for and the people in the middle of the country at this time were finding Hollywood immoral. So it was actually in the producer's interest to sort of tone down the uh, content of movies so that it would become, have a more broad-based appeal to the country that was very, uh, very Christian at the time. 
very Christian and very sort of not permissive, whereas Hollywood was an excessive kind of... Before the Hayes Code, I mean, there was a lot of... You know, you can see old silence where there's a lot of nudity and there's a lot of uh, sort of uh, drug abuse and prostitution. There's anything went. And I think uh, America started to sort of say, we don't want this. There were strikes called. There, uh, there were boycotts of movies made by religious organizations. There were complaints registered by the Catholic Church, the Episcopal, you know, all the churches. So Will Hayes actually, at least at the beginning, was doing sort of the industry a favor. Whether he was doing sort of the artistic sort of freedom a favor is, is questionable. And as it snowballed, as time went on, when it became sort of like, it became like a little too later, like as it escalated in the 40s and the 50s, and you could, you know, Lucy and Ricky have to have twin beds and absurd rules, trying to legislate morality, absurd rules like you have to have one, if you're going to sit on a bed, if two people are on a bed, there has to be one foot on the floor at all times. Those kind of like really minute laws, legislating morality become become absurd. But at the beginning, it may have been a reigning in that might have been necessary. At least for me, the actor playing the part, I have to sort of convince myself that that's what is the case. You talk about how he kind of brought this level of censorship to movies, but... In addition to what was on the screen, part of what he did, too, was this notion of the morality clause for actors also. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's a good question. That's a little, yeah, that's a little harder to to swallow, that sort of legislating people's personal lives, which he did. There was a morals clause that eventually he brought into being that every contract of every motion picture player had to had to sort of, you had to sign a morals clause. And... And I know in today's day, now, there are still these kind of things that are being done to people, like a sort of teachers and stuff. I have a friend whose mother is a teacher, and uh, she's decided to retire. You know, she's of a certain age. She's close enough, but she could have continued. But now they're instituting this sort of uh, a similar kind of thing for her to sort of, like, sign. And uh, uh, she's mor- she morally objects to it on the grounds that my personal life is my personal life. And I am not sort of making promises about my personal life that does not affect in any way my ability as a teacher. And I think by extension we could say, you know, any artist would say, you know, I know wonderful actors that are completely immoral, <laughs> you know, and people that have... Um, have a lot of excesses in their life and you know they're they can't save any money or or they uh maybe get loaded way too much and stuff like that and they're brilliant actors you know what i mean i don't think art i don't think art particularly lines up with morality and clean living you know if it were the case you know it's too ephemeral you can't you can't put your fingers on art that way well thank you very much yeah Thanks for listening to another edition of the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm off to Monster Palooza and hope to bring back some interviews for you. Then next week, it's the TCM Film Festival, mecca for all those who think of cinemas as their churches. Remember to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and to leave us a review. You can also find Cinema Junkie at kpbs.org slash junkiepodcast. So, till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie.
KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com.